Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hello, Radical Society. I want to start the podcast since it's, I think this is podcast number eight. Um, I wanted to thank everyone who's taken the time to subscribe and rate this podcast. It has meant the world to me that in these early, early days, folks have been so incredibly supportive, sending me nice messages and sharing this podcast amongst their uh, friends and communities on social media. And if you have not, I humbly, or more like shamelessly, ask you to please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your podcasts. I've decided to call the next couple of months of shows Legends of the Fall. Um, We have quite a lineup coming up. And the first of these would be this week's. And my guest, who totally fits the word legend, is Mr. John Doe. I can't contain how excited I am to have this conversation. Not only is he one of the biggest influences in punk music, and ridiculously talented, but he has a heart of gold and is just the very best of human beings. John's work as a founder of the legendary band X is carried on for four decades. Their current album, Alphabet Land, has been critically hailed and is chock full of amazing songs, great lyrics, and amazing musicianship. John has recorded seven albums with his band X in addition to several solo records and contributions to other bands like the Knitters. And if this is not quite enough, he is also a very credible actor, having appeared in dozens of films such as Roadhouse and Boogie Nights and TV shows such as Roswell. The two critically acclaimed books he co-authored, Under the Big Black Sun, and more fun in the new world provide a first-person view of the burgeoning L.A. punk scene in the 1980s. Coming up, this is a good one, folks, my talk with the incredible John Doe. Hey, John. Nick. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm good. It's only been a uh, decade and a half or just underneath that since I spoke to you. Really? I think so. It was, you know, about 2008 or so probably was the last time. Seems like yesterday. Ah, uh, um, yes. How is, <laughs> how is your quarantine? Oh, it's lovely. I couldn't <laughs> ask for, I, you know, I remind myself how grateful I am that I've got a, a beautiful partner who helps me out. I've got a, a cute little house. Um, I got money in the bank. X has been very good to me in the last 10 years. So I can't complain. It's just, I, I hope that people who have a small amount of empathy uh, before this, that it increases because kind of it's up and down like a roller coaster. And you can do that in like the first four hours of your day. <laughs> so to remind right. yourself and everybody else that that's what's happening, then yeah. Then, then you're going to be okay. I hope. Right, and you're now kind of in the music capital of Texas, and uh, I mean, you're seeing the impacts right on down there on the clubs and the live, and I mean, in your own, weren't you doing a tour this year for the anniversary or not, or just a 
straight out tour to support Alphabet Land? Uh, we have, you know, we we tour all kinds of different ways. You know, sometimes, uh, I mean, this this year was going to be just for Alphabet Land, and of course, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Los Angeles, the LP. Um, but yeah, we, you know, I was hopeful in April that we would get back to work in August or September. Um, we still had a few things on the books and we were trying to keep them alive. I, the, the worst thing is, um, or not worst thing, but the most impactful thing is I have several friends like Steve Wertheimer who runs the continental club and sea boys and, and he's okay. But we, we did a live broadcast there for hardly strictly bluegrass. Uh, you know, the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge or Golden Gate Park uh, concert. And we did it at the Continental and everyone was socially distant and, you know, being careful. And you had to have a nasal swab that they sent you and all this kind of stuff. But Steve was really emotional and um, just going back in there and having music. Um, another friend, Will Tanner, who runs the Hole in the Wall across from UT. Yep, and yep. He and I are partners in another bar called the uh, Long Play Lounge. And we reopened for maybe three weeks, two and a half weeks, and then shut down again. You know, we have some outdoor space. And, you know, it's just uh, all the bartenders, all the musicians who have weekly gigs, all those sorts of things. That's who is really suffering. Yeah, the supports, same down here in Nashville, obviously, the support staffs are just kind of decimated. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. And, you know, hopefully that there's, you know, something in Congress, hopefully that'll, that'll pass and, and they'll get some, some additional help. And everyone's applied for unemployment and everyone's applied for, you know, PPP loans and, you know, junk like that. So people are hanging in, but it's going to be a whole different world once <laughs> the world the world comes back, whatever that is going to be. Right. I mean, are your, your team of people, your agents, I mean, are they putting out markers saying, well, we think uh, by next summer you can book a tour again <laughs> or not really? No, no. Luckily I've, I've done, you know, some Facebook concerts. I got included into Willie Nelson's, uh, 4th of July picnic and oh, awesome. hardly, hardly strictly bluegrass, but it was, you know, you kind of, I, I went out to, to Willie's place in, um, Spicewood, um, uh, and they had the saloon set up and it was the same sort of thing. You got temperature taken when you walked in and, you know, uh, there was a film crew, but they were all very careful. And, but most of the people did it, did it virtual, um, you know, did it in their bedrooms or in their, you know, yeah, it was, it was weird, but I wish, I wish they were putting out markers because then it's something to shoot for. Right. And our, I mean, does this give you the, um, let's say the focus or the, you know, the non-distraction to be able to do writing and recording that you wanted to do? Or do you feel like, hey, we already did that. We did Alphabet Land and it turned out really well. Yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've been doing, I've been writing some songs for a solo record. Um, but recording, I, I don't do home recording. I don't have okay. a home recording set up. And um, I like the process of getting a batch of songs together and going in and making a record of what happened. Yeah, I'm getting pretty close though to having a, a full record worth of songs, new songs. 
That's awesome. I mean, and how, like you've done, I mean, what have you done? Like a dozen solo records? How many solo records have you I done? Think, I think 10 and then two collaborations with uh, one with the Sadies and one with Jill Sobule. Um, wow. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's nothing like, you know, the the real the <laughs> people that really record solo records, like what Bob Dylan's up to like 35 and Willie Nelson is, I don't know. It's like more than one a year. Yeah. You can look up how many it's in the it's like in the eighties. Willie Nelson has recorded like eighty some studio records. He is the king of being proficient. He's amazing. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. But your output though, you know, when you look at the band and your solo stuff and collaborating and contributions you've made to things and your acting career, I mean, you have kind of an enormous amount of output yourself. The books. Yeah. I I, I like I like applying whatever um, creativity or talent I might have. I think it's worth it's worth using, and it's not it's not right to waste it. It's not right to just take it for granted. You gotta you gotta honor it and and work on it. You know, make it make it as good as you can. Well, and you do. So you you improve every time. So um, oh shucks, now you do. I don't know about it. But you it's, do. It's, it's just <laughs> it's just it's just not going. Totally down <laughs> in quality. <laughs> it's, not, it's not withering <laughs> as it as it tries to maintain. Uh, but Alphabet Land, you know that that was really exciting because because we did um, we checked a few boxes and and people say so why did it take you so long twenty seven years to make a record and thirty five since Billy Zoom made a record with you that's like. We didn't have a record company. We didn't own our masters, which we got all the the first four records back, and now they're at Fat Possum. So when Fat Possum proved to be good at selling and and getting streaming uh, numbers up from for the first four records, then we thought, oh fuck, cool, we got a record company, and we like them, and they're not just you know a lot of lip service and and crap like that. And we didn't have a producer, and so it's like, what? We're gonna make songs we're going to put the time and and effort into rehearsing them for what for nothing for just like the hell of it and it's like maybe when you're really young you do that because that's the way that you can you know put a flag in the ground or or get people to notice you and uh so we're just like fuck it why nobody wants to hear new songs fine you know we'll apply our creativity elsewhere and xene writes all the time and uh but then we thought in like the beginning of 2019, we thought, okay, we have a producer, Rob Schnaff, mixed the live in South America when we were out with Pearl Jam. And it sounded great. He got it. Cool. He works with uh, Cat Power and he did so, a bunch of stuff with Elliot Smith. And so like, he's cool. And um, Great producer. Yes. And uh, which by the way, I, I think Cat Power has a new record coming out sometime soon. Um, but anyway, for some time. Uh, so we have those boxes checked. And so Xene and I got, um, got busy with writing, writing songs. And then we realized in bring, in going through the rehearsal that like Billy and DJ were showing up with, with more and more ideas and really, you know, participating in, in the way the songs were arranged. And, and, and I dropped some of my fucking ego about, well, that's the way it goes. If, if something didn't work, we just change it. Let's take out some chords. Let's get some do, new chords for this. So that was different. So we ended up having like a, 
you know, written by Cervenka, Doe, Zoom, and Bonebreak. So mm. That also helps with unity, you know, in right. the band. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, you know, after you know, trying to keep a personal relationship together is one thing and trying to keep together a band relationship with all these different personalities so that you're all happy, yeah. you know, tens decades later, I was wondering how you kind of actually manage that dynamic. Oh, you know, it, I don't know. Just, I think we like each other generally. Um, there are times when we don't like each other and then we try to, to get past that. And, and you, as you get older, I think you sweat the small stuff less. Yep. Um, and at some point you're, you're more grateful maybe and, and realize, you know, we've got a good thing. We do, we do love this band for better or for worse. So just get over yourself. Well, that's, that's wisdom. Wisdom oh, works good. It works uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like, I mean, I'm still, you know, it, like the ego thing, it's, it's still really difficult in personal mm. relationships and in group relationships, you know, where you can just say, oh, well, I guess there's no point in defending myself because <laughs> then I'm just lying. <laughs> so I guess I won't do that. Uh, but you, but it's such a, you know, it's like such a well-worn path that you're like, well, I'm, I'm driving fine. What do you mean? And, and you're like, oh, you're such a freaking dumbass but um but then you know we so we did Exene and i took a one of those train trips there were these train trips that dave alvin used to sponsor where you'd pay the you'd get on these old train cars and you would go from you know los angeles to chicago and it would take two weeks and it was beautiful and Exene and i were on there for just a couple days she read a piece um that i said that that is a song you know, please give it to me and I'll make an X song out of it. And so she did. And then we recorded four songs um, at the beginning of 2019. One was a new one and then three other older ones, old ones that we never really got the right good version of. <laughs> and mix those like in May or no, mix those by March or something like that. And then by April, she was sending me a bunch of stuff and I was um, actually working on a movie, which I had some downtime on and, and really got, got serious about it. And so we went into the studio in, in 2020, like January of 2020, finished it up in three weeks, like most, what I think a good record should be done. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what, what, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. God bless you, because it's fucking hard. But I, yes, it is. And but the the main thing uh, is to keep in touch with your intuition, because if you got some little voice that's saying, "Oh, I don't think that's right. I think I I don't think that you know I don't think that's the way it ought to go," you have to trust that. You have to listen to that. You know, in life, but also especially I think in creativity, because every time I've said. You can justify anything. You can talk yourself out of anything. You can give yourself a bunch of reasons why, oh, no, that's fine. But there's some, you know, schmuck record company dude who's saying, oh, you should do this. It's going to be great. And then you do it, and it doesn't turn out to get you what you thought it was going to get you. And you thought, fuck, I knew I shouldn't have done that. Now I'm embarrassed. Now I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, it's obvious that I went against my 
better judgment. I, I didn't listen to myself. So anyway, we did that. We kept listening to ourselves when we were making the record. We tried to play to our strengths. And yeah, I'd read um, somewhere you said with Star Chamber that had like kind of the Ernie Ford influence from 16 Tons or something. And it was funny because I was watching this Norman Lear bio and, you know, I guess he must have written on that show, the Ernie Ford show. And they were really? playing that song throughout the, the, the Norman Lear bio I watched like last week. Yeah. Yeah. Exane had that line. Uh, you play 16 bars and what do you get? Uh, and <laughs> then, and then, we didn't, then we didn't have a line. I mean, this is another thing that, you know, usually you have most, we in the past, X had pretty much all the lyrics set before we would go into the recording studio. And we didn't for this. We were, you know, playing around with stuff right up to the point that, that we would uh, record it. And then, and we didn't have a line after that. You play 16 bars and what do you get? And then there was a missing line, uh, another town over and um, drunker in debt. But there was a missing line. So <laughs> eventually we came up with, you know, another town, uh, no, another hangover and drunker in debt, but, a, but another town over and drenched in sweat. Anyway, <clears throat> keep your, you know, we tried to keep our, selves open and you know just like make it a process don't just go in and and set down something but discover stuff while it was happening that's fantastic i mean and i love the songs uh free water and wine and like strange life yeah uh, water and wine it just drives man it's so good so it's you know, I, john, I, john I, it's I, so fresh i swear it this record sounds like 18 year olds made it it's, seriously <laughs> we were waiting but i mean in a good we way a, we had a lot of built-up you know like tension <laughs> it worked it sounds really fresh and of the moment it was i i think it's fantastic i appreciate it uh you know water and wine i, I actually i mean that's not a, a baseline that um <clears throat> that i haven't played before it's a pretty standard sort of um blues rock uh r&b sort of baseline um, but I went to see that band Shannon and the Clams who were awesome. And I'd seen them before up in Oakland and, uh, they were like the best thing on the bill. It was a, <laughs> it was a triple bill with them and Modest Mouse and, and, uh, uh, Black Keys. And <laughs> I went home and was inspired more by Shannon and the Clams. No offense to Modest Mouse and Black Keys who I like. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, and so, somebody said, somebody said that there's a, um, if you're having trouble with your output, you should examine your input. Hmm. And, and I, I, I didn't, haven't heard that before, but I, I should have remembered who said that. But it's true. You know, if you, if you see interesting stuff, if you listen to in, more interesting stuff, then or go back and have a new, you know, different take on something that you've seen or heard before. It's like if you're having trouble with output, check your input. Right. That's. Yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. I like that. I'm going to yeah. use that. Yeah. I mean, you can. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and I mean, you must have a, at this point in life, like a million different influences in life. But, you know, when you were starting out and stuff, I mean, who like really, when you were young, like who like made it like, I got to go down this path. It's like a, a disease, a virus, not to pun on today, but <laughs> I, I, I've got to go down this path and pursue music and. Uh, who are the guys that really are women that really I don't oh, know, I set think, you off? I, yeah, I think when I was, um, you know, I was very fortunate in the era that I grew up 
Um, so as a young as preteen and or not as a tween and a you know teenager, like I was fifteen or so when you know the Doors and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and all the kind of psychedelic music started or or was available. And, um, you know, I'd grown up with the Beatles and Rolling Stones and animals and all that stuff. And, and before that, when I was a kid, I listened to folk music because that's what kids were given. You got little 10 inch records with Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie and things like that. Um, but it was a psychedelic kind of stuff that, that really, I thought, oh, this is, um, I got to try to do this. And then there were, you know, lots of other influences that came after that, but that was the... Right. And you grew up in Illinois. Is that where you were raised? No, Baltimore, pretty much. No, I, I Baltimore. Mean, yeah. I was born in Illinois, went to Tennessee for four years, uh, Wisconsin for uh, three years, I think. But by second grade, third grade, I was in Baltimore. <clears throat> Stayed there until I moved to L.A. in 76. Mm. Yeah. And what what sparked that? I mean, what 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 made you kind of say, "I'm going to the West Coast. I'm out of here." I just had had enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I love the attitude and and I'm always grateful for having that sarcastic um slant which <laughs> you have to have in Baltimore. It's it's a prerequisite. Um and and I learned a lot. I, you know, uh was acquainted, you know, sort of friends with John Waters and a few of the people that he worked with just before I left, but I had been, my parents moved up to Brooklyn. So I had a free place to stay in New York and I had been to CBGB's and Max's and seen like the heartbreakers and, um, uh, talking heads and a couple other bands. Um, but I hated the East coast by that point. It was like enough with this shitty weather and nasty attitude, you know, like, you know, especially if you wanted to try to do something different. But in Baltimore, it was, um, oh, somebody tried to do that and they it failed, so you can't do that. It's like, what? Why? Stop it. And and on, on the West Coast, it's like anything goes. So there were those conventions that are kind of more more apt on the East Coast. Yeah. And, and you know, you get, I think when you grow up in a place, you, you start getting haunted by ghosts. You know, it's like you walk down the same streets and you... You know, but I'm I'm really grateful for for growing up, you know, like from my late teens, early twenties, going into Baltimore City down to Fells Point, which was a, a really kind of wild west place. There were bars in <laughs> in Fells Point, which is right down by the docks. You know, you would have a freighter who was unloading right next to the bar you were drinking at. And there were places that were just houses. And there was no sign, and you just knew that there was <laughs> there was a bar, and they just would set up a bar in a like a front room. They just put up a you know like a couple of big high tables, and that was the bar. <laughs> it was like it was lawless. It was kind of like it was you know like Hoboken used to be, mm. um, where there was a yo you go down and there's a bar. Uh, it's there's four there's a <laughs> there's an intersection where there's three bars on on the corners. And it's like the next one and the next one, and every one of them had like three or four bars on the corners. Anyway. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. Is there, is there, I have to ask, was there a good John Waters story in there? 
Oh, uh, I went to a couple of Christmas parties where, which, which were just sort of, I mean, they were big, there were, you know, maybe a hundred people in a loft and, but we were so enamored with, with like Mary Vivian Pierce and, and, um, and divine would, would come around, you know, uh, not in drag, but just as Glenn and, um, we were just, oh my God, these are movie stars because we'd go to see Desperate Living and Female Trouble and, and uh, Pink Flamingos and Multiple Maniacs and all the, all the early stuff. And, but John was always very, uh, he, he drank at a, at a bar that I used to play at. And, you know, we would sit and chat about uh, Tennessee Williams and that was refreshing. Mm. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a very personable, one of the best conversationalists ever. I can only imagine. Yeah. Oh. Was there music in your house when you were growing up? I mean, were you self-taught? Did you just pick up a guitar at some point? How, what was the uh, environment like? Well, my, my dad played classical piano and my mom sang. She, you know, sang opera in college, but uh, never really pursued it. She was a homemaker. And then, then she went, to, they were librarians. My dad was a librarian. And uh, my mom, uh, was a school teacher, and then she um, took a break while we were little kids, and went back to be a school librarian, high school librarian. Yeah, they were they were uh, they were encouraging to a degree. You know, they they loved me. That was the main thing. They were they were um, affectionate towards me and my brother, and I know a lot of people who didn't have that. And and it's it's uh, as time goes on, you have to. People struggle with that stuff, and, and I'm really grateful for that. I knew I was cared for. Awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was Are they good, still but... around? <laughs> no, no, they've been gone for years and years. But, um, but uh, yeah, I'd, there was definitely music. They they didn't like um, they didn't like rock and roll particularly, but they you know begrudgingly they they let me and and my friends practice in the basement, which we had a kind of finished basement, and uh, it was our, kind of our clubhouse and. We'd drink beer and get high and stuff like that. And they would turn a blind eye to it and pretend they didn't know. But I think they, you know, but in those days, you know, in the like late sixties, it was questionable, like how much people knew because it was all so different. Right. Yep. It was. And so you guys, uh, so you get to LA, you form a band. I'm not going to get, you know, I think the history of that's been told. Um, Yes. I'm not going to get too into that. Um, the only questions I kind of have around all the early records was like some of the producer choices. Like, you know, how did you guys meet like Ray Manzarek? Um, uh, Ray came to see us, see us at the whiskey. And I think we were opening for Levi and the Rock Cats. Um, I'm pretty sure we were. And he had just, he had read an article in the LA Reader. It was called Sounds Like Murder uh, by a friend, um, Chris Morris. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, he just was attracted to the, to the poetry in, in the article that it, it quoted some lyrics for Johnny Hit and Ron Pauline. And it also had some stuff for the alley cats and, uh, I think the plugs anyway, I mean, all the journalists back then, um, you know, Christine McKenna, Chris and, and, uh, slash magazine were basically saying, look, there's a lot of shit going on in your city, go out to small clubs and you will find somebody that you, that, that speaks to you. So just do it, do yourself a favor and do that. And, um, yeah, so he saw us that, that night and I wish I remember, 
actually meeting him for the first time. But uh, I don't. Mm. We did a we were doing a version of Soul Kitchen and his wife Dorothy uh, said, "Hey Ray, they're they're playing your song." <laughs> Cuz we were playing it twice as fast and right. <laughs> and he didn't even recognize it, so she could <laughs> she could hear it. She could hear it before he could. But I do remember him coming to a rehearsal that we set up afterward and I was so nervous. Oh my god, we played probably seven or eight songs and he said, "Yeah, this is great. Let's do something." And and he tried to, you know, he tried to get some meetings with the uh, major record companies and they all told us to fuck off and we had a lawyer who was a manager, uh, a a manager who was a lawyer and we got a bunch of rejection notices. And and then, you know, Bob Biggs from Slash said uh, had only put out a couple of singles and the Germs record and he said, we'd love to do it, and we'll give you $10,000 to make a record. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the second record, you're going to have $20,000. And we thought, oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Ma, we made it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think you should have a budget of $15,000, and hopefully you'll sell 15,000 records. Nowadays, right. uh, and how far did that go back then, John? I mean, could you record for three weeks with ten thousand bucks, or two weeks? Uh, it was more like two and a half, yeah. But but we, you know, recorded, mixed, and uh, recorded and mixed in two and a half weeks because we knew the songs. I mean, this is we've been playing some of these songs since seventy seven, so, you know, so seventy seven, seventy eight, and the end of 79 or middle of 79 is when we recorded it. So we knew the songs. It was Ray who, who helped us decide the, um, the songs to record. We, we put some other songs later on, uh, wild gift songs like we're desperate and I'm coming over and, um, adult books and a few others. I can't remember. Maybe, uh, when I love passed out on the couch, but, you know, he'd picked ones that were kind of, I don't know, fit together better, more uh, darker, uh, maybe, more mm. rock, more rock, less um, less roots. Yeah, it was, so he contributed it, kind of thematically, kind of the direction you guys oh, were heading. Totally, and and you know he he didn't. Uh, there's a lot of producers which they know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> he says in an indicting tone <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, who, who feel like who feel like they've got to um you know make suggestions in order to prove that they're doing their job and i don't think that's really I mean, if someone is uh unsure and someone is is um doesn't know what they want then absolutely step in or if someone says you know what? I want your sound. Give me your sound. Great. There's a lot of producers who who just sort of put their stamp on things to prove that they're doing something. And I've I've been guilty of that um, on my own or working with other people on occasion. But I, I realize that's that's a bad idea. You just got to listen to what what's happening, and maybe don't change it because it's quirky and don't even it out. And and Ray was really good about that. He just wanted to capture a good performance. Get good sounds, set up a vibe, make it happen. Don't overthink it. Don't reinvent it. It's working. Obviously, you know you have to leave things alone 
if they're working. But there's plenty of people, you know, even like that uh, Bob Dylan Chronicles when he's talking about uh, Daniel Lenoir, you know, and, and he Daniel Lenoir makes it so that Bob doesn't even know if the songs are any good. He's, he's like, he's all upside mm. down and mixed up. Like, dude, you're Bob fucking Dylan. <laughs> Tell this other guy to, to take a hike. Uh, no, it's, it, it's a, it's really touching. It's really touching to, because we all suffer from, you know, insecurity at times, but, uh, yeah, Ray was great. I still miss him from time to time. Mm. No doubt about it. And another door connection. You have Robbie Krieger playing on the new record. Yes. On a song? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he called, he left a message on, we, we have stayed in touch, uh, with Exene and I and John Densmore because we did a couple of, um, songs with the, like tribute nights, one up in Seattle and one in LA and where I got to sing like, uh, Riders on the Storm and Exene sang, um, part of, uh, Roadhouse Blues. And anyway, Robbie Krieger left a, message on my machine on my phone and um long rambling message about i don't know if you got the passes for the photographer and like what the fuck is going on here <laughs> you got the wrong john and it turns out that it was it was like somebody from their management company but i called him back and he said what are you doing and i said we just finished a record and he goes oh that's cool i should come down and play slide i was like what <laughs> yeah so he did on that last song, which turned out to be prophetic. Fantastic. So, and how was like for you? I mean, cause I know you're kind of into the intimate thing when you toured with Pearl Jam, like in South America, I mean, what was that experience like for you to play? I imagine very large audiences. Yeah. It's all soccer stadiums. You know, South America is kind of a world gone right in, in that the Ramones were huge at, towards the, you know, the last five years of their career in South mm. America. And, and I think Pearl Jam and, and a lot of other bands benefit from that because they just get it. Yeah, playing soccer stadiums. In Sao Paulo, we played two nights and they sold out uh, 70,000 seats. Like, as the promoter, when do you say, dude, let's put up a second night for sale? It's like, oh my God. There were not 70,000 people when we played, mm. but it was, it was, you know, it was the best way you could ever see South America in the Pearl Jam bubble. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> there was one time, there was one time that we were in like the black escalades and had a police, uh, escort, like yep. going 60 miles an hour with like four feet in front of the the car in front of you, like just hurtling along in these like cops on motorcycles, clearing the way. And it's like, Oh my God, this is like being a dignitary. It's like, <laughs> so you are. Here, you know, <laughs> no, we're not. I'm glad we're not. Had you been to South America before? Or not? was that like a first oh, run no. down there? No, no, no. But, but, uh, my partner and I, you know, I, I said, okay, we're going to go and the band can just, but she's helpful and, and, and she's a good person. So it was fine. And so we got to experience that and would get up at m early every morning and, and go walking around and see stuff. It was incredible. And eventually, like, like by the fourth or fifth show, people were showing up a little bit earlier. And, and in 
Chile. Um, they were like singing along with nausea. They were like, da 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 da, and you could actually hear audibly hear it from the um, audience. That's awesome. Yeah, that was kind Gosh. of like, whoa, that's cool. Damn, that is awesome. So you have this interesting life. That's part of it right there, doing all this touring stuff. And I mean, do you have a preference? I mean, do you prefer kind of being like a solo guy? I'm going to write my record. That's more fun for me. Or is kind of being out playing live a, a big part? Or is it both? Oh, I think whatever you're not doing, you think, God, if I could only <laughs> be doing that. Um, it's the truth, brother. That's the truth. So it's a good reminder to enjoy what you got while you're doing it. Um, but I, you know, if there's anything that I, I I think you're fortunate to have is to have diversity, to have, um, options and things like that. So you you don't feel as though you're stuck in a grind, but, um, maybe the grind is good. Maybe it's a great grind. Um, I, I do fear for, you know, changes in the, in the way that our life has, changed I, I i definitely have some serious trepidations i mean i i have to assure myself reassure myself that x hasn't played its last concert mm. you know and what's what is that what what is that what's go a little deeper with that well uh in those dark moments you know billy is no spring chicken neither am i and what if we don't play next year what if we don't play the year after that? Well, maybe we're going to be like, thank God we're, we're relatively healthy. Um, but Billy's had two bouts with cancer and, and, you know, now we're sitting on our hands for eight months, you know, since, since March. Well, I, I don't think we actually played the last time we were together was as we were mixing alphabet land, which was the 13th of May. And, um, or maybe the 12th, 12th of May or, uh, March, not May, March, 12th of March, we were mixing. And that was another cool thing is that is fat possum said, okay, the, the record's mastered, let's put it out. And that was, the record was mastered like the 10th of April. And we put it out on the 22nd, <laughs> you know, put it out on Bandcamp, and they said, just keep it, keep the money and, you know, pay back the, the recording fund. And, and we did, you know, I mean, I think I'm sure, pretty sure this record's going to go into the black, even without selling, you know, tens of thousands, but that's another story. Um, I think the last show we played was like in December of 2019. And that's, uh, that's hard. That's hard to kind of wrap your head around. It's like, holy shit. What if I played my last show with this band that I, I, as you know, been a part of my identity and. We had to kind of go through that back in the late 80s, early 90s, where we took a year or two off. But this is, this is different because we feel as though we have you know, something to say and something to, to play for people and things like that. It's, I don't know. You know it's like, like I said, it's up and down. and You can go up and down very quickly. But um, you got to try to fight against it. And how do you like, like, how did the acting thing happen in your like life? How did you get into that? What, what started that? I mean, how do you view that as part of your career? 
Uh, I'm a little more mercenary. Like I want to know how much <laughs> I'm going to get paid. <laughs> As Robert Mitchum used to say, or I read somewhere, you said, at this point in my career, I just want to know how much do I get paid? What are the hours? And how much do I have to fall down? And, <laughs> and, and do, I get a, do I get a hotel room with a view? <laughs> uh, I'm not that, that mercenary. Those are good guidelines. It's, oh, he's, he's my hero. He's my acting hero. Uh, you know, I got asked to Alison Anders. I give her all the credit or blame. She was doing um, Border Radio and had Chris D from the Flesh Eaters as the lead character and had a couple other people from the music scene acting in it. And she asked me if I would play this role of Dean, who was like one of the three or four lead characters. And it was great. It was just, you know, I, I could tell that. And, and she had, <laughs> Allison had just worked on Paris, Texas. And so she had general ideas of, of how a scene should go, but she didn't actually have all the dialogue. And she figured, well, like, well, you know, worked for Vim Vendors on Paris, Texas, so it'll work with these guys. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> we're not <laughs> Harry Dean or Nastasia Kinski. No, it was sometimes it's it was great, and it actually is a pretty good movie. But I, I give her all the credit and, uh, for, for awesome. getting me for showing me that it can be rewarding, and it's rewarding in a in a more internal, quieter, like personally. You, you know, if the scene worked and you just hope that somebody captured it on film, but you can tell, you get a kind of feeling, you get, you get that feeling of being transported and that you kind of, you know, embodied your, or your character and, and it all felt real. Is it a little less immediate for you though, in a way, because it's got to be put together and editing's a big part. And when you do music, you know, you can just Hey, we're going in the studio. We're we're gonna have a song by the time we're done. We'll know what it is. We'll know yeah. how it sounds. Um, uh, well, I, a little different I, timeline. Yes, and and um, I haven't really been invested in the final uh, product. I, I just kind of go in and do my thing. Do do the very best I can. I take it really, really seriously. Do as much research and then try to, you know, put all that aside and just be the person. Uh, but then when I'm done, I just kind of walk away and say, okay, you, I did the best I could. Now, the, the most, the most recent thing that I, I did was, um, a remake of DOA, the, uh, Edmund O'Brien, uh, film noir movie. And, and I played the lead guy in that. <clears throat> and, um, it was all done by a friend of mine, Kurt St. Thomas. I know Kurt. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. We did it down in St. Augustine. And uh, shot it in black and white, and it looks really great. And uh, I, I just, I hope, <laughs> I hope and pray that we can, you know, get it finished at some point because it's, you know, he's kind of doing it on a shoestring budget. And, but that I'm more That's invested. That's awesome. That that I'm more invested in, and and it, it is frustrating because it's just hard. But uh, music is, you know, you have a lot more control, and and that's that's fine. Uh, but releasing the control is a is is good too. Just going and do your thing. It's like, uh, in the flesh eaters, I get to play with the flesh eaters now and then, and I'm just the bass player. And that's great. I don't have to front the band. I don't have to, I just show up and play good. That's rewarding. I'm sure that is. Is there a, um, you know, during your time, you know, with the, all the auditioning that goes on and stuff, was there something that you really wanted to do that you didn't get as an actor? 
I felt like it's, <laughs> um, I, I can't, nothing's coming to mind, but I felt as though when I got turned down, it was for a reason. And, mm. and I just, you know, that's also part of the letting go. Because at, at the very beginning, um, you're second guessing yourself like, oh, I should have done this during the, the uh, audition. I should have done that. And then after you go through that a dozen times, then you realize you just got to walk out of that audition and just say cool they either got it or i did it and they saw it or not um i think the last thing that i that i went up for because i i kind of uh, about 10 years ago refused to audition right unless unless it was some something really big you know and i went in an audition for that ford versus ferrari for the second guy I well, you'd been great in that uh it, it was it was kind of their tech their and and it's a I should know the actor's name. You've seen him quite a bit. Real thin. Um, but he did a great job. So <clears throat> there was a reason. Um So the no regrets of, thing works well. Move on. Yes. Oh yeah. You you have to. Otherwise you're you know, and regret is a is a really destructive force. Yeah, it's yeah. dangerous, man. Yeah, I can't do that. And and there are, you know, things that I yeah, I there's some regrets that I have in uh, sort of my relationship with Xene, which I go into in, in the, uh, one of those books, the punk rock books, but I can't, you can't dwell on it. And, and yeah, I wish we wouldn't have tried to fit in and I wish we wouldn't have stopped working with Ray, <clears throat> but we did, you know, and, and life goes on and, and um, one door closes and et cetera. Got to make the best of it. Well, that's a good segue as we kind of close this out. I wanted to ask you about both, you know, being an author, Two books, yeah. Um, one uh, under the big black sun, and the other more fun in the new world. Is that it? Is that, did I get the title right? Yeah, we we took both titles from the um, <laughs> both titles from X Records. Uh, I I wanted I wanted to call the first record <laughs> the first book the Have Nots, which is also a X title, and they said, "Oh no, we can't call it that. It might end up in the economics section." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my god." Publishing is weird. How is that uh, possible? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I kind of went, I got, had to, I went into it, I dra got dragged. I don't know if I was kicking and screaming, but I got dragged into it. My friend Tom DeSavia kept saying, you should write a book. And it sounded like way too much work. And, you know, like something that you're supposed to do when you're like retired from everything else. And I'm not a real raconteur. Um, I'll tell stories now and then, but it's not like I hold forth all the time and stuff. So, uh, but the decision to use other people to tell the story was, was, a that was the, the thing that I kind of thought of and realized that, okay, this is a way that, that it can be bigger and, and I don't have to do all the work <laughs> and, um, it'll tell a, a, a broader story. Did he, did he, Tom work with you on both or did you do the second one alone? No, we, we worked on, uh, both of them together. And the second one, the first one went from 77 to 82, second one went 82 to 87. The second one was more his era cause he was a little older and was enamored with, um, the like roots, um, music scene, lone justice, rank and file, et cetera. 
<clears throat> so that was really his scene. And, and that was what was kind of uh, the new part of, well, there were a lot of different things, but that was new to the LA rock scene. Right. How did, I mean, those books did fairly well, right? They well received. Yeah. 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 I mean, they sold well. We actually, uh, you know, went, went into the black a little bit, which is supposedly pretty rare. But congratulations! First, you know, yeah, it was the first time that the, the L.A. punk rock scene got a, uh, I think, a legit. Um, it was time, as Tom likes to say, it became the wine and cheese discussion. <laughs> you know, like we got onto NPR <laughs> and stuff like that. Suddenly, L.A. punk rock. You know, they had already talked about New York and London enough, and it's like, oh my God, there's this whole new thing. Did you? <laughs> darling did you hear that uh there was a punk rock scene in los angeles anyway um uh, but we we worked pretty hard to find the people to get them to to write in their own voice uh jane weedland dave alvin henry rollins um pleasant gaiman uh, a, lot of, a lot of people who have been there and and some contributed to both <clears throat> both books we worked hard to give people the sense of you are there we, mm. we as if we, you know, everybody wants to know what it was like to be in a, in a scene. And that was a, a very tight and short-lived scene. And so I hope that there's more to follow. Uh, I haven't heard of it yet, but I think there's a, definitely an L.A. hardcore book. I think there's a, there could be a great um, Los Angeles ska. And uh, like there was a, you know, two-tone kind of thing that was going on with the undertones. Uh, or untouchables and and uh you know bands like that there's a definitely a, a book uh that should be written about east la punk rock and and east la music but anyway it was it was rewarding to feel like it got you know history got put down and, and they'll have a harder time revising it as time goes on right wow well it's i always feel better when it's kind of firsthand you know i don't I don't know. I mean, I'm not bagging on people that are writers, but I don't, I don't like the observational as much as I like the people that are just in down in the dirt doing it. You know, I love yes. that, that point of view. Yes. Yeah. And um, you accomplished it. Well, we, we, you know, gave people prompts. Everybody had a, had a subject we felt that they were the expert in, and that's why we would give them, you know, here, write about this. <clears throat> and and we also encouraged everyone to to paint the picture because Los Angeles was a or is, you know, it's a really weird, cool, um it, enigmatic cuz it's hard to kind of capture it. Uh, but that was that that kind of vibe was what brought me to LA. You know, I read Raymond Chandler and Nathaniel West and and people like that. And I thought, yeah, I want to go see that. Mm. Well, and you think about even during your time, right? The different, what you were just kind of saying, I mean, the different music scenes going on, I mean, just totally different from each other, you know, yeah. whether it's the metal stuff that was going on simultaneously. I mean, it's, it's crazy the, how much was going on in the city. Yes. Yes. And I mean, it still is. It's just, it just hasn't gotten, um, uh, hasn't gotten publicized. Right. You know, there's parts that have, but it takes time. It takes time to it does. put it out there. All right, one last question before I let you loose. I mean, is there anything great you're listening to right now that you kind of want to share musically? 
yeah. Um, we toured with a band called Skating Polly, and uh, they haven't put anything out in the last like year, but they're totally worth listening to. Skating Polly, uh, Particle Kid, who's um, uh, a friend of mine. I, I did a, did a uh, split single with him. Um, it's his name is Micah Nelson, but he goes by Particle Kid. He's uh, Willie Nelson's son. Okay, and uh, Sunny War who uh is in venice she's um got a really terrific way of playing guitar it's kind of like elizabeth cotton does that um you know thumb and forefinger mm. um actually the psychedelic furs new record is kick ass i haven't listened to it yet i gotta get into it this weekend oh my god it's so fucking good i've been and, listening and I, to yours so okay thank you very much uh it no it is so good and um but skating Polly has it's like what if Kurt Cobain and Xene had some kids because it's two sisters and uh two sisters and a brother and and they're they I think they put out their tenth record and and they're like twenty and twenty four the sisters oh, who are the main wow. songwriters yeah <laughs> Xene produced a record of them of theirs like years ago when they were like 10 and 13 (laughs) (laughs) and it was still like awesome it was still crazy crazy good uh i gotta go find them too then yeah lucinda williams's record is really good uh of course bob dylan's records kind of uh like if you want to experience the past present and future at the same time you can do that um but the the uh, Psych Furs, I, I wasn't a huge fan of theirs at the beginning. We toured with them in 2019, and uh, I thought, oh, these guys are really dark. And Richard is one of the mm. best frontmen. Oh, I mean, he's dude. so engaging, and and he doesn't get like repetitive, and he doesn't doesn't have a shtick. And and the and this is a it's a great record. So uh, that voice of his, oh, it kills me. So I know, I know, it kills me. Well, my friend, listen, I'm so happy to hear your voice. I'm happy to catch up with you. Um, anyone that's listening, Alphabet Land is a remarkable piece of work, and it's a really beautiful record, and uh, you got to listen to this record. That's um, right. That's right. Listen to Nick Turzo. He knows his records. I, I, don't, I don't like much. I'm like Mikey, man. <laughs> I don't like much. This record is damn good. So I appreciate um, it. And I, yeah. I appreciate your friendship and I'm really grateful you did this with me today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And stay healthy. Yes. Uh, I will, if you will, let's make a deal and, and see each other uh, down the road. Let's do it. All right, man. Thanks, John. All right. You're welcome. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. Till next week.